Hey, uh, about 19 years ago, I was pastoring this little church up on Lookout Mountain called Mountain Christian Fellowship at the time, and I heard that there was this really cool college group down the hill at Applewood Baptist Church led by a guy named Trevor. Over the next uh, few years, that grew into uh, the Next Level Church, which I think was pretty much the greatest church in the whole world, as I remembered it, and uh, certainly the greatest church on Tuesday nights in the whole world. Um, since then, uh, Trevor uh, went through some trauma. I went through some trauma. Trevor uh, worked with my friend Kevin doing church consulting and now he works with a group called Monvi, who does a web-based discipleship uh, program. But over the years, Trevor and I get together once in a while, and uh, just a few months ago, we got together and had a beer. And I said, Trevor, it would be so cool if you would ever speak at the sanctuary. And he said, he said sure. So I'm just really excited uh, to have Trevor Braun here this morning. So Trevor, you want to come on up here? I mean, some of you know Trevor, I think. Some of you do, right? few of you know Trevor. Yeah, so um, let's pray for Trevor, and then um, you can take it away, okay? Father, I thank you so much for uh, Trevor. I thank you for his family. Thank you for his mom. Thank you for, uh, well, I guess it's an acquaintance, uh, friendship over the years. Lord, thank you for your life in Trevor. I see you in Trevor. I thank you for his heart. I thank you for his love for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for his willingness to be used by you. Lord, we pray that um, you would use Trevor for your purposes this morning and that you would open our hearts to what you have to say through Trevor. But Lord, as Trevor speaks, I pray that you would bless him. And uh, Lord, remind Trevor that uh, he's home. This is uh, a family, your family. So Lord, thank you so much for Trevor. We bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Peter drank beer that day. You had beer too. And I just learned that you and I both went through trauma. Yeah. It's been a really educational few minutes for me. Uh, anytime that I, I get uh, invited to teach at a place that I have not taught before, um, I like to express one just an amazing amount of gratitude. Um, I, I am honored and humbled any time that I get to uh, hang out with the coolest people on the planet, no matter what church they happen to attend. And uh, I realize that I'm not the voice that you hear on a week-in and week-out basis, and uh, you don't know me and I don't know you, and so <clears throat> that makes the next few moments together one of those times where you're watching TV and you're looking for the remote wondering, can I change the channel? Where does the next guy come along? Uh, but I hope that the next few minutes that we spend together will be a good journey for both of us uh, as we uh, dive into what uh, God has for us. Everywhere uh, you look as we wrap up one year and enter into another, you see the slogan, a new year, a new you. On this uh, month's cover of Men's Health Magazine, you see the slogan, a new year, a new you. On last week's Parade Magazine, it was a new year, a new you. When you go to the gym, it's a new year, a new you. I realized last week, Francis touched on this a little bit, a new year, a new you. This year, I celebrated my 25th birthday for the 15th time. <laughs> And the older I get, the more I realize that yes, there is that part of me, every fiber of my being, every year when we get to January, I want a fresh start, I want it to be a new year, I want it to be a new me, 
but the older I get, the more I realize I kind of also want it to be a little bit more of the old me, too. I want to start off this year, new year, old me. When I was younger and thinner and more agile and had fewer responsibilities and, and a time when I had more time and less stress and fewer bills. A season when maybe I was more alive or, or more closer to God and things seemed more passionate. I find myself looking back as much as I find myself looking forward. And when I think back about what life was like, one of the things that resonates with me is the games that we used to play when we were kids. These were games that we didn't learn how to play in a book. Somebody taught it to us, we picked it up along the way, like the game Marco Polo. It's a game played in the pool. If you've ever been around a pool with kids playing Marco Polo, you realize this is the worst game ever invented on the planet. <laughs> it's just annoying to experience it. But what we learned from Marco Polo was simply just how to be annoying in life, which is a good place to start kids off, right? And then there's the game Red Rover, Red Rover. This is a good game, right? This is the first time that we experience the come closer, go away. That comes in handy later in life when we deal with relationships with people who say, yes, come closer, wait, no, go away. The game Simon Says, this is where we learn that in order to get all of the cool things in life, you have to know the magic word. Red light, green light, this is where most of us learned how to drive. <laughs> the game tag was where we learned that it's fun to be chased but not fun to be caught. This became our dating philosophy. <laughs> the game truth or dare, this is where we learned that both telling the truth and doing the dare are risky and should be avoided at all costs. And then finally, there's the game Hide and Seek, where we learn that it is more fun to hide than it is to seek. I have older twin sisters. And my philosophy early on in life I learned had to be divide and conquer. I never wanted my sisters to be on the same side, because if they were on the same side, I was screwed. <laughs> so I would spend most of my childhood trying to figure out how to get them to be pitted against each other. Except for in the game Hide and Seek, it's hard to do that. My sisters would play hide-and-seek with me, and they would send me off to hide. And what I didn't realize for the longest time, because I wasn't a very bright kid, was that they were not seeking. <laughs> I just thought I was really good at hiding. <laughs> I would sit there for hours wondering when I was going to be found. I once hid in the dryer. I wouldn't recommend that. We learned lots of lessons in life from the games that we played when we were kids. So I want us to take a look today at the very first game of hide-and-seek. If you have a Bible, uh, there's one in front of you, brought one with you. I want you to turn to the very first soap opera ever produced, the book of Genesis. This morning, we're going to look at the section of the Bible that I think has the most concentrated set of lies in all of Scripture the most concentrated set of lies in all of Scripture, and it's also where we find the first game of hide-and-seek. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the story of Adam and Eve, a story that most of us at least are somewhat familiar with, right? We can at least probably identify the names Adam and Eve, right? But beyond that, their story really is quite remarkable, and I want us to begin by looking at their story found in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's stop right there. For the next few minutes together, what I want us to do is I want us to play the game, is this a lie or is this the truth? Is this a lie or is this the truth? So right here we find the serpent saying, to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is this a lie or is this the truth? This is a lie. You might want to write down this is lie number one. Lie number one. What did God actually say to Adam and Eve? You may eat of all of the trees in the garden, but one. That's how God works. In his generosity, he says, look at the freedom you have. You may eat of all of these trees, 99.9% of all of the trees you may eat of. You just can't eat of this one. So lie number one, the serpent starts out by saying, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? Verse two, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Is that the, a lie or a truth? It's about 50-50 on this one. Eve gets it almost right. As we previously said, God said you can eat of all of the trees but one. She gets that right. She says, he said we can eat of all the trees but the one in the middle or we must not do what else to it? Touch it. Lie or the truth? That's the lie. God never said you can't touch it. Eve adds that. She, she's doing a little revisionist history of what God said. She's adding some things. So she says, we're not supposed to eat of it we're not even supposed to touch it. Verse number four. You will not surely die, said the serpent to the woman. Is that the truth or a lie? That's a lie. When Eve and Adam eat of the tree, do they die? They don't die. Not physically, anyway. The truth is that they would spiritually experience separation, that they would have a spiritual death. But that's not what Eve is referring to. Eve thinks that, that, that the, the punishment is, boom, you just drop dead on the spot. So we go to verse 5. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the serpent says, you will be like God. Is that the truth or a lie? Is that the truth or a lie? Hold on to that for a second, because we're going to get to that when we get to verse 7. It says in verse 6, And then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some, and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they take the fruit, they eat it, and their eyes are opened. Lie number five is that they are not like God, right? They realize they're naked. 
Realizing you are naked does not make you look like God. God has never had that moment where he went, I'm naked, therefore I'm God. Realizing you are naked does not make you like God. The truth is that this is the very first time in Scripture that we see that clothes are made. So they sew fig leaves together to make clothing to cover their nakedness. This is actually the first version of a hospital gown. It's covering some things, but you can't quite get the fig leaves right. And Eve turns to Adam and she says, does this fig leaf make me look fat? And things have gone downhill ever since then. Verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Pause right there for a second. Is that not a great picture of God? This is one of those verses where I go, sometimes you just have to stop and, and just think about that for a minute. Right here in the midst of this tumultuous story where all kinds of lies are being told, half-truths and things being made up and added, right here in the midst of this story it says, and the Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. It's an amazing picture of God. It's an amazing picture of what he likes and the fact that he spends time in his own garden and that he does so in the best time of the day. And as God walked in the cool of the day, it says they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and he says, where are you? I can't help but think these are the three saddest words uttered by God in all of the scriptures. He's in his own garden walking, enjoying the beauty of the creation that he has made. And he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? I can't help but think that God is still asking those same questions of us today. Where are you? that he's desperately searching for and longing to be with us. And like Peter prayed, I don't get that. I don't get the fact that God even likes me, much less loves me and wants to be with me. And yet God walks in the garden in the cool of the day and he says, where are you? And in verse eight, this is the response that is given. And it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid and God said to him, where are you? And Adam answered, and he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So let's pause on the truth or lie game for a minute, and let's play true or false. Adam gives several responses to God here. Let's just evaluate, are they true responses or false ones? He heard God, true or false? That's true. We can assume that Adam probably did not have a hearing problem. He hadn't been with Eve long enough to have selective hearing. He's not very old. Things are probably good for him. True. We, we can assume with good conscience, true, he heard God. He was afraid. True or false? I think, again, we can probably assume, yes, afraid is probably an understatement. Terrified might be a little bit more appropriate. That's true. He hid. Is that true or false? That is true. He did hide. Now, playing hide-and-seek with God is a little bit on the stupid side. I think we can all realize that. He wins every time. But we can assume that he did hid. He's not making it up. It says that they hid among the trees in the garden. He's naked, true or false? 
That's false. Why is it false? Because they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. He's not naked, but he sure does feel naked. Because there is no amount of fig leaf covering that can make you feel clothed when you feel naked before God. There is no amount of clothing that is going to make you feel safe in that. He's trying desperately to cover his shame and his guilt, and no amount of clothing can do that. The very first time you ever have that moment in the presence of God where you feel totally exposed and vulnerable, I gotta tell you, is not one of those moments that I long to experience again. But I do very vividly remember the first time that ever happened in my life. And I was afraid, and I was alone, and I desperately just wanted to be covered up. I just wanted to go away. But there's also something very freeing when that moment comes. That moment that you realize that there's nothing that you've ever done, no place you've ever been, no thought you've ever had, no decision you've ever made, no choice you've ever made that has been a surprise to God. That there is nothing that is secret from him. There's something freeing that comes in that moment when you realize that he knows you better than you know you. Because that's when the genuine, authentic relationship with God begins. When you no longer have to go to God and say, God, here's some things you probably need to know about me. You don't have to have a define the relationship talk with him. He knows those things anyway. And yes, he relishes the moment that you have those conversations with him. But when you bury it in the back of your mind that you're never, ever, ever going to shock God, it is a very relieving feeling that God has never gasped in horror and said to himself, no, I had no idea. I love God's response. In verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were fat or ugly or lazy or uncoordinated or dumb or not athletic, that you'll never amount to anything? Who told you that? We are all told lies. Starting from a very early age in life, we are all told lies. I mentioned some of them just now. Who told you those things? Those are the things that we carry long into adulthood. Who told you that? It causes us to have a distorted view of self and of God. When I was uh, in elementary school, every year there was one event that I dreaded more than all others, and that was the day that we would go to school dressed up in clothes that we never wore to school before because we were having our class picture taken and no parent wants their child to look like the slouch in the class picture. So they send us off to school in our Sunday best. And we all line up, they've got the little bleacher thing, they've got that stupid little letter board in the front that says Mrs. Day's first grade class. I hated that day above all others. Not because of the clothes, but because I knew that I was going to be the kid standing front in the middle right behind that little marquee sign. 
because that's where they always put the shortest kid in the class. So from me, it would go up this way and up this way. And to me, it was like every person in the picture was pointing at, look at the little kid in the front. And of course, there was the girl, Jenny, who in first grade was seven feet tall. She's hitting the head on the ceiling in the back. And she hated my guts. And in class, I would have to sit behind her and she'd flick her finger at the back of my head. I was the littlest kid, not just in first grade, but in second grade and in third grade and in fourth grade and in fifth grade and in sixth grade. I was so happy to go to junior high where they stopped taking the dumb class pictures so I couldn't be in the middle anymore. Between the summer of my seventh and eighth grade year, some pretty radical things happened to me, most of which I was grateful for, but all of which were painful. We went away on family vacation that year to Mexico, and God in his infinite wisdom decided that while we were on vacation, that would be a good time for my voice to change, where I was only with my sisters who loved to mock whatever they could find. I was having a hard time controlling my octaves. I was all over the map. And every time I would speak, my sisters would mock my problem. Prior to that time, it was really quite enjoyable because I sounded just like my sister Tammy. So when the phone would ring, I would answer. And because she was older, they were usually boys. And they would say, is Tammy there? And I would say, this is her. <laughs> I had some really great conversations with boys that she was interested in. <laughs> so while we were on vacation, my voice changed. In three months, I grew almost 12 inches. It was amazingly painful. Just prior to that, I'd been diagnosed with scarlet fever, which was the reason that I was so little, and when they finally realized that I had scarlet fever and they started to treat it, the growth spurt was unimaginable. I went from being a towhead. Do you know what a towhead is? I was a super blonde kid. I went from blonde hair to brown hair in three months. When I showed up to school, the beginning of my eighth grade year, I walked into the lobby of our junior high school, I walked up to my friends, and I stood there, and no one talked to me. And I couldn't figure out why until I realized they didn't recognize me. And then when I spoke, it was even worse because I was having a hard time convincing them it was me because I didn't sound like me and I didn't look like me. But things for me in that short amount of time radically changed. I was no longer the small kid. But I can tell you that as most recently as a couple of weeks ago, I saw myself in a photograph with a bunch of other people and I was shocked to realize I was the tallest person in that picture. Because to me, I never view myself as the tallest person in any crowd. I'm still that short little kid. I'm still the runt. I'm still the skinny kid. We call that body dysmorphia. Most of us have some version of it. We view ourselves different than we really are. We also have spiritual dysmorphia. We have that thing that happened in our life, and for all of us it's different, but that moment when somebody damaged us spiritually, when they told us something that just wasn't true, when they said that we would never amount to anything, that we were worthless, that God couldn't love you. 
Can somebody recite for me the poem Humpty Dumpty? If you're really brave, you might want to, you know, stand up and really get into it. Humpty Dumpty, anybody? It's easy, you can do it. It's not very long. I'm going to wait until somebody does it, so somebody might as well do it. Thank you so much. Turn and face this way. I've heard it, so they need to hear it. Oh, fantastic. Very good. What is Humpty? How do you know that? You saw the pictures. Okay, but you know, it doesn't say Humpty Dumpty who was an egg. Humpty Dumpty who was an egg sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty who was an egg had a great fall. At no point in time does the nursery rhyme say anything about an egg. Somebody told you that, okay? You saw the picture. You know the person who wrote Humpty Dumpty did not illustrate Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty is actually not about an egg at all. I'm about to tell you. Humpty Dumpty actually, as are most nursery rhymes, little stories that were written to mask the true story about who it was written about. Humpty Dumpty is actually a nursery rhyme about King Richard, who was a rather large, and by large I mean rotund man, who once fell off of his own horse and hurt himself because he was so large. Most nursery rhymes are actually the same thing, Jack and Jill. It's not a story about two kids going up a hill. You might be familiar with Marie Antoinette and what happened to her. She was beheaded, right? Her head came tumbling down the hill. We tell these great little nursery rhymes to our children, no wonder they're messed up. They're really about terrible, awful historical events. Somebody came along and said, this is a little great little poem here. We should put some pictures to that. Let's make Humpty an egg. That makes sense. When I say the name Mary Magdalene, what's, what, what words come to mind? What was she? A prostitute. How do you know she's a prostitute? The Bible says so. Is that true or false? That's false. The Bible never says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Not anywhere. Somewhere along the line, the story became a lot better if Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. I mean, you know, you've got to get this going. Somebody's out there going, you know, Mary Magdalene, she's a, that's a good character, but man, could you imagine? If we made her a prostitute, this is a really good story. God says, who told you that? Who told you that? Verse 12. It says, and the man said, the woman that you put me here with, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it and this is the very first time we see the adult version of hide and seek come into play. The adult version of hide and seek is dodge and deflect. Dodge and deflect. Is this the truth or a lie? The woman you put me here with, she made me do it. Truth or a lie? That is a lie. And this is lie number six. How did Eve get to be with Adam? Anybody? Adam asked for her. 
Adam's naming all of the animals in the garden. Or, uh, you, you remember that? says all the animals prayed in front of Adam and he gets to name them. What a cool job is that? You just, he's just making words up. I make up words all the time and nobody appreciates them. <laughs> the word inhonest is my favorite made up word. Inhonest. You're not dishonest and you're not honest. You're just somewhere in between. You're inhonest. My grandmother thought that the word frustrated was a real word. She had taken the word frustrated and flustered and put them together, and she, she was just frustrated all the time. She thought that Walmart's name was actually Walmart. I don't know why. I figured if she could make up words, I could make up words. Adam made up words. He was the one who came up with the word duckbill platypus. I don't know. He's naming all of the animals in the garden, and he gets done with that, and he says, God, that was a really great experience. I really enjoyed that. There were really some great animals, but I noticed something. There isn't anybody like me. That's a man's way, by the way, of saying that he's lonely. He just can't actually come out with the words and say that. <laughs> I'm lonely. He says, there isn't anybody like me. There's, there's, there's no one that I can converse with or interact with. And so it says that God takes one of Adam's ribs and makes Eve. I don't know how Adam gets from that to the woman that you put me here with. <laughs> Verse number 13. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Truth or a lie? <sighs> That's a tough one, but I'm going to call that lie number seven. God gave us brains and the ability to reason and to ration. And at no point in time did the servant force Eve to eat of the tree. Did he make it tough? Yeah, he certainly did. Did he tempt her? Yep, he did. But she still had cognitive will and choice. And so that is a lie. Eve did it all by herself. She talked herself into it. And then she, in turn, talked her husband into it. Oh, the influencing ability of women. There's nothing like it in the world. God's questions as we wrap up our time together. He begins by asking, where are you? And he goes to, on from asking, where are you, to who told you that? And he goes from there to asking, have you eaten of the tree? And then he goes from there to saying, what is this that you have done? In a short amount of time, God asks lots of questions. Does anybody find that really strange? Why is it strange that God would ask a question? Because he already knows the answer. See, that's one of the fringe benefits about being God. God never needs to ask a question, not once. He already knows all of the answers, and yet God asks questions anyway. He cares enough to ask questions. And in a short amount of time, he asks four questions. So let's evaluate. What questions did we ask in that same context? Context. In these few short verses, what questions did Adam and Eve ask of God? Oh, that's right. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't ask any questions. Well, maybe we should start. Maybe we should start by asking the questions, what are you afraid of? 
in the presence of God or in others when questions are asked, what are you afraid of? So I'll answer the question for me. I'm afraid of rejection. I don't really know anybody who's not. Most of us are just better at masking it. I don't know anybody who rushes headlong into, let's see how many people in this world can reject me. I'm afraid of being discovered or or being found out or being real or being myself. Most of us spend our entire lives building a facade. This thing that we build on the outside, this construct, so that people will view us in a particular way. And we never allow people to see who we really are. Another question that we could ask is, who are you hiding from? Are you hiding from God or for others or from yourself? The best thing to know about hiding from God is it's a futile effort. He knows. And if you left here with nothing else today other than knowing that God knows you intimately and he still cares for you, He still likes you. He still loves you. He still wants to have relationship with you. I mentioned that Genesis is the first soap opera ever made. All of the Old Testament is nothing other than just an endless soap opera of God's interaction with his people. And at some point in time, I can't help but think God wants to just boot them all to the curb and go, yep, I know them and they're bad people. I'm done. But that's not the case. The crescendo of the Old Testament is that God comes up with this idea that's been rooted in history, eternity past, where he says, I'm going to send my only son. I'm going to send my only son to step into this drama-filled awfulness because people still don't get it. They still don't get that I want to have a relationship with them. So I'm going to do the the, the thing that I know will do it. I'm going to send my son so that they can see God in the flesh. So that they can see what I'm really like, what I'm really about. And the remarkable thing was that Jesus did those things so that we might know what God is like. The final question we may need to ask is what nakedness are you uh, covering? Living in denial of reality still makes us feel naked. What nakedness are we trying to cover? All of us have done things that we're ashamed of. If you haven't done something that you're ashamed of yet, well, you need to get busy because it's bound to happen, so just do it and get it over with. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. Whether it be in thought or in action or in deed, we've all done something that we're ashamed of but it's worthy of having that conversation with God that says, God, here's my list of things I'm ashamed with, and I know this doesn't surprise you, but here it is, nonetheless. Here I am. And you put yourself in that space where for the first time, maybe you allow God to say, and I love you anyway. One of the authors and friends that I admire the most is a guy named John Ortberg. In John's recent book, he writes this one sentence, and this is the only sentence, actually, of the entire book that I remember. He could have saved himself really a lot of time. (laughs) He wrote, 
We all want to be loved for who we are, but we're all trying to be someone else. We're all trying to be loved for the very things that we, we, we want to be about, and yet we're all trying to be something we're not. I spend a lot of time, effort, and energy in my life doing exactly that. Where we should be is creating true identity based upon who we are, because God is not surprised. And then we no longer need to play the games that we played when we were kids, where it's no longer about hide and seek. It's simply about figuring out how to live life in such a way that every day, in some big ways and in some small ways, we just simply just seek to be the person that God made and wants us to be. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and to close our eyes, and I'm going to pray. And basically, I, I, I want to invite you to just eavesdrop on my prayer with God because I'd like to pray for you. And if at some point in time I say something that's true for you, maybe you, you would do what Peter said a while ago and you, you disagree with that and say, yes, God, that's true. My prayer uh, for you to God goes like this. God, thank you so much for, for caring and loving us for who we are. God, that you are not surprised by anything about our lives, about what we've done, where we've been. You're not even surprised about where we will go and things that we will do. And that you like and love us anyway. God, I pray collectively for those who are gathered here in this room. For those of us who, who you've been asking for a long time, where are you? I ask God that maybe today would be a day of coming out of hiding and, and for us to say, God, here I am. For God, those of us who have hidden and have felt naked even with all of our efforts to try to cover up, God, I ask that you would quietly assure us that you know everything there is to know. God, for the scars that have been inflicted upon our life in the past from those maybe people who are even well-meaning or well-intentioned, but for those things that cut us and hurt us and wounded us deeply, things that we were told that simply weren't true, God, I ask that you would bring healing. That we would hear you asking, who told you that? Ultimately, God, I ask that you, you would do the work that only you can do to draw us into your presence. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus that we might know what real love is and that that real love comes from you and that you sent him that we might have relationship with you. So God, help us to know your son to the best of our ability, to know his life and his deeds, but most importantly to know the work that he came here to do which was to search for those in hiding. God, thanks for this day and these few moments that we could have together. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it.
And he said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so in the garden long ago, Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they knew something. They knew that God was somehow good, and they had somehow given in to evil, and they were naked. And thousands of years later, Jesus hung on a cross, and he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And today we come to the table and we take his body and his blood and we find out that he really is good, that his goodness is grace, and that he meets us in the very place that we try to cover, that we try to hide. In some amazing way, I think this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's the tree of life. Jesus transforms it into the tree of life. So that place that you long to hide is a place God wants to meet you with his grace. And when he meets you with his grace, he creates you in his image, a person of grace. You see, it's all grace. We just didn't know it. And so this morning, come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The light cups are juice, the dark cups are wine. They're both the love of God poured out for you, given to you, completing you, covering you. You see, your righteousness is the very righteousness of Christ. You're his body, and he wraps you in himself. He finishes you. He completes you. He loves you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your goodness. May we receive it, and may we worship you and glorify you forever. Amen. Trevor, thank you for coming to share with us today. We're really grateful, and I know I resonate very easily with the things you shared, and I was sitting there listening and thinking, I remember as a kid that I used to, um, when mom and dad would invite somebody new to the house, uh, several times I literally went and hid in the closet because I was so afraid to meet new people, and here I am standing here. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, we don't really come out of hiding, I know, until we, until we trust, and until we trust the love of those that we're coming out of hiding to and there is no greater love than a man that would lay down his life for his friends and I know that's what Jesus did for us he laid down his life and demonstrated his love that we could come out of hiding and um, I'm a big believer in groups and community if you haven't figured that out and um, it's so cool to me when I see someone who's really grounded in the love of the Father who risks to be transparent and say, here's what I've been through. I've struggled in my marriage or with kids or uh, sexual abuse or whatever it might be, any kind of painful thing. And I've seen the power of community. When one person will risk sharing that, and all of a sudden, everybody else starts coming out of hiding. It's the most amazing thing. And to see that kind of love where we can um, love each other right where we are, not give advice and try to fix everybody, but love each other right where we are and uh, see that transformation and uh, call out the real, the real you. So. Hey there. I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. 
If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message and then uh, forward this link on to them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord if He'd like you to contribute to this endeavor financially. We really can't do this except for the fact that God inspires people like you um, to give. And uh, you can do that by uh, going to the website and clicking on uh, the donate button or uh, by simply mailing a check to the sanctuary downtown at uh, 2215 West 30th Avenue, Denver, Colorado 80211. Uh, thanks for being a part of what we're doing and God bless you.